1: Almost two decades after the Human Genome Project sequenced the first human DNA, finally researchers plan to embark on a large-scale study of Africa's diverse genomes. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show, new research shows that intense exercise may increase the risk of motor neuron disease.
2: If you're the sort of person that fires your motor neurons a lot because you're a marathon runner or a professional football player, that is putting a stress on the body. And
1: the noisy return of cicadas from the underworld for the first time in 17 years may spell dangers that we have long been unaware of. Farmers are
0: pretty understandably annoyed by all this and respond by spraying their crops with massive amounts of pesticides. These pesticides seem to have an adverse effect on children's health.
1: But first. The earliest Homo sapiens skeletons come from Africa. They date back almost 200,000 years on that continent. It is thought that early homo sapien migrants from Africa encountered other species of humans on their travels, such as the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Evidence of their interbreeding is found in modern Asians and Europeans, and me, in the form of genes. They do various jobs, such as protecting people from certain diseases. But analysis suggests that those who remain behind in Africa also interbred with another species of human, of which no fossil record remains. It is not known which genes have survived in this species' descendants. The genetic diversity of Africa is not only greater than that of any other part of the world, but it might well be greater than that of the rest of the world combined. Yet only a tiny proportion of the genomes analyzed have been those of people from Africa. A group of genomics experts recently made a proposal to change that disparity.
3: The Three Million African Genomes Project, or 3MAG for short, is a bold and new vision that has been outlined by a Cameroonian geneticist called Ambroise Wonkum. His aim is to try and sequence the complete genomes, so the complete set of DNA, from three million people of African descent.
1: John McDermott is The Economist's chief Africa correspondent.
3: And... His aim for this is to redress what has been a European or Caucasian bias in the sequencing of genomes to this day. Most of us will have heard of the Human Genome Project, the ambitious international research effort that ended in 2003. But since then, the vast majority of genomes that have been sequenced have been of people of European descent, which means that the world is missing out on the vast genetic variation that is present on the African continent. And that gap has severe medical consequences, which Professor Wonkum is trying to counter.
1: I would have thought a human is a human despite the outward differences that we that we share, but I guess not.
3: Well, it's the variation in our common genome that makes us all unique. And what Professor Wunkum and his colleagues at the University of Cape Town point out is that because humanity emerged in Africa and because of its size and diverse ecosystem, there's been more time for natural selection to work its magic. And therefore there's been more variation in the African genomes than there have been in many others. Only 2% of all sequence genomes have been of Africans or people of African descent. But 7% of the variations we know cause disease are from that population. So you already get a sense in which the store of African genetic material can offer a disproportionate insight into medical conditions.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that. What might the medical impact of learning this information be? Potentially
3: massive. When I was recently at University of Cape Town, I sat in on a project to do with hearing impairments in young Africans. Now, in America, roughly one in a thousand babies is born deaf, but on the African continent, roughly it's six in a thousand, so six times as many. Now, some of that is to do with disease, often picked up by by mothers when they're pregnant, But in many cases, it's caused by genetic defects. And frankly, African doctors have no idea what to look for when doing genetic screening. So the researchers have already found that in Ghanaian children, for example, 40% of inherited deafness is due to a particular mutation or variation. And not only is that variation hardly ever found in European kids, it's also hardly ever found in South African children as well. So when we talk about the diversity of the genomes amongst Africans, there's actually a huge diversity amongst Africans as well, which is why you need so many genomes to be sequenced, which is why you need those three million.
1: That's so interesting. And we see similar sorts of differences with women of Jewish descent who are prone to certain types of breast cancer versus other people. So we're now able to see this and spot it at a more granular level. But it does pose the question if the Human Genome Project sequenced the first human genome in 2003... Why did it take so long for an African project to get underway?
3: I think there's a couple of things going on. The first is that most researchers and most research institutions are in rich countries, and therefore they have an inevitable bias towards the diseases that afflict disproportionately rich people in the West. Why do you think so much money has been thrown at cystic fibrosis over the years, a genetic condition that disproportionately affects Caucasians? The other reason, though, is technology and the cost of sequencing these genomes. It used to cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do so in the early 2000s, which was when the Human Genome Project was completed. Today, you can sequence an entire genome for about $1,000, and that's the sort of price that makes it attractive. You may not expect it, but there are fantastic geneticists working in some unlikely places, in small towns in Nigeria in Mali, across South Africa, Ghana, Sudan. And the hope with the 3MAG project is to to give these brilliant scientists who have stayed on the continent and want to work on the continent the chance to do cutting edge science.
1: So it sounds like it will give African scientists a good boost, but do research institutions on the continent have the capacity? It's not the
3: case that all of the work will be done by African scientists. Professor Wonkom is trying to set up a broad church. He wants, for example, the UK Biobank, which is a similar effort being run in Britain to sequence half a million genomes to share data with him so that British people of African descent, their data can contribute towards this 3 million target. The same goes for a similar initiative in the United States. And there's also private sector firms that he wants to get involved as well. 54Gene, which is a startup co-located in Lagos and Washington, is doing a similar effort to sequence genomes and he wants to get them involved as well. So it's not just one man in one lab in Cape Town. This is an African-led but global effort.
1: So how long will
3: it take? Professor Woncomb sees it as taking 10 years, so sequencing 300,000 genomes per year. At this point, he still talks about it as A bit bold, a bit mad, and a lot needs to be ironed out, not least issues over data privacy and consent. But the hope is that with money coming in from abroad and the talent being at home now, it can be done in the course of a decade.
1: So what are the benefits globally rather than just for Africa?
3: There's potentially lots. So one part of this project is about learning more about those variations that are more pronounced in African genomes. And that would mean more accurate genetic screening, more accurate diagnosis and more accurate treatment and getting away from this Caucasian bias that has plagued genetics since the Human Genome Project. But there's benefits for all as well as just Africans. Given that there's so much genetic variation on the continent, you can actually pick up rare causes of disease that aren't just present in people of African descent, but everywhere. Recently, scientists did a study trying to work out what variations may contribute towards schizophrenia. They looked at a population of Xhosa people. These are one of the larger ethnic groups in South Africa. And they found quite a lot of variations in just a sample of 900 people. Other scientists were doing a similar study in relatively homogenous Sweden, And they had to look at way more people in order to find the same number of variations. So Africa's genetic resource is a rich repository of variation, and therefore it can shed light on rare diseases that are not just present in Africans, but are present everywhere. So ultimately people should think about Professor Wonkum's project, 3Mag, not just as benefiting Africa, but benefiting humanity as a whole.
1: John, that is so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Understanding genetic diversity benefits healthcare at the population level. But knowing how particular genetic predispositions work can have a huge impact at the individual level, too. The most common form of motor neuron disease is ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It affects the nerve cells responsible for controlling voluntary muscle movements like chewing, walking, and talking. The effects of the disease worsen terribly over time. Who gets ALS and why is not well understood. Scientists believe that genetics and environmental factors play a role, but a potential link between exercise and ALS has been controversial among neurologists for a long time. ALS is more common among people in professional sports and the military, which is why suspicions have developed over the years that it may have something to do with strenuous exercise. In America, ALS is often called Lou Gehrig's disease, named after a famed baseball player who was diagnosed with it. Around 1 in 300 people will develop ALS, and new research by the University of Sheffield in Britain has been analyzing exercise as a risk factor for the disease.
2: I have always suspected that ALS tends to happen to people who are fit and well otherwise and very physically active. And it's fair to say that the information in the scientific literature has been controversial up until now.
1: Professor Dame Pamela Shaw is the director of the Sheffield Institute for Translational Neuroscience and an author of the study. Sylvia Chankova, the economist healthcare correspondent, recently spoke to her for Babbage.
2: The study that we have recently published showed us that the exposure of strenuous physical exercise was linked in a robust way as a risk factor for ALS. We took three approaches. The first approach was to use a technique called Mendelian randomization, which is a robust way of showing whether a link between an exposure, which is heavy physical activity, and an outcome, which is ALS, is causative or not. And what we did with this Mendelian randomization, um, we took a large population of patients that had donated DNA and also undertook an exercise questionnaire in the UK Biobank. So several hundred thousand participants. And the questionnaires were geared towards certain types of physical activity we chose strenuous regular physical activity. The way that was measured in the questionnaire is in the last four weeks, have you engaged in strenuous physical activity at least two to three times a week for at least 15 to 30 minutes each time? And from that data, we were able to pull out the group of UK Biobank participants who engaged in strenuous physical activity and pull out the genetic markers of that lifestyle factor, if you like. And then we took a separate large genomic data set, looking at genome-wide association studies for ALS, pulled out the ALS risk factors, and then you marry the two data sets up. That's what Mendelian randomization is. And that showed us that the exposure of strenuous physical exercise was linked as a risk factor for ALS. That's an advance on the techniques that have been used up until now.
4: But you mentioned that there are two other approaches. What were they?
2: So the second approach we took was in normal, healthy individuals taking blood and looking at gene expression. So what they did in that study was look at the gene expression changes in response to an acute burst of physical activity, football, rugby, running. And we looked at the gene expression changes at two minutes post-exercise. So you get a picture of the gene expression changes that is the body's response, stress response if you like, to acute physical activity. And what we found is that 52% of the genes that are known to be causative for ALS changed in response to this physical activity, including the commonest gene change c 9 orf 72 So there is a link between the body's gene expression response to physical exercise and those genes that can cause ALS.
4: And the third approach of the study?
2: The third approach we took, we took the commonest genetic subtype of ALS caused by a mutation in a gene called C9-ORF72. So we took a number of patients who had that C9 variant of ALS, and we measured their exercise exposure going back throughout adult life. So we used this validated questionnaire on the C9 patients, comparing them to normal controls and other subtypes of ALS patients. And what we found was that there was an inverse correlation between the level of physical exercise and the age of onset of the C9 ALS. So the more physically active you were, the more of an athlete, the earlier these patients with the C9 risk factor developed their ALS. And we know for that particular genetic change that penetrance is not 100%. It means that you can have the rogue gene present, but you will not necessarily in your lifetime develop ALS. So we were interested in our lifestyle factors interacting with that genetic risk factor to precipitate the disease or not. And it looks as though if you have the mutation in the gene C9 and you engage in regular strenuous physical activity, you're more likely to bring the disease on and bring it on at an earlier age of onset. So those were the three elements that we studied in this paper. It by no means gives us all the answers, but I think it takes it some steps further forward in exercise being a lifestyle factor that is a risk factor for ALS. And it confirms what I've always suspected from studying my patients over many years.
4: Is that specifically for people who already had the genetic predisposition for ALS?
2: The way I think about it, If you're the sort of person that fires your motor neurons a lot because you're a marathon runner or a professional football player, that is putting a stress on the body. You're making your motor neurons generate more energy, fire more than somebody who leads a sedentary lifestyle would do. And if you're going to put your body under that stress, you have to mount a protective stress response or a damage response pathway, if you like. And my feeling is that some people, they may have a propensity based on their genetics to be athletic. So there are certain factors about our genetic makeup that predispose us to be athletic, but they may have a genetic makeup that means that they don't fully operate or mount the stress or damage limitation response. We need to dig into those pathways that change with acute exercise in much more detail. So there will be other genetic risk factors apart from the C9 or 72, but we need to delve into the detail of the data to uncover those. But clearly, for the vast majority of people, exercise is a healthy thing to do. So we would not want to advise people, please drop your exercise programs, we need to unravel it further before we can give people firm advice on it. And if we do a larger scale study, hopefully we will be able to quantify the risk so that people can make lifestyle choices. But more importantly, we're trying to think of ways of preventing the problem from happening in the first place. So if we can understand what's going on at a genetic level, then we may be able to recommend preventative strategies for people who want to have that lifestyle.
4: So what would that look like in practice? Would it be you go to your GP, they look at your record, um, your genomic sequencing, and then they say, oh, you have this gene that predisposes you, so you should modify your exercise routine and do something lighter, not to stress certain types of neurons?
2: It's a, it's a good question. And I think the way genomic technology is expanding, within a very few years, we'll be able to have a whole genome analysis and get a list of the 20 medical conditions we're more susceptible to than the next person in the street or our next door neighbor. So we're going to get more and more information about variations in our genes, you know, genes that predispose us to certain medical conditions. And I think it's a way of being able to advise people. So if they want to make their career a sporting activity, perhaps they could be screened for important risk factors, and then able to make an informed decision about whether I want to take this risk or not. More importantly, I think, is being able to say you've got this risk factor, but being able to show that if you take medication that helps the body mount the stress response, then that helps to protect you. I think this is an important step forward, but there is definitely more work to be done.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Pleasure to meet you.
4: As
1: Professor Shaw mentioned, this study used Mendelian randomization. It's a relatively new method of study that effectively turned a large data set into an experiment. Yes, it's incredible. You can read our full analysis of this in The Economist this week. Also in this week's issue, you can find an essay on the global state of cybersecurity and a report on drones as regulators relax the laws governing them. Don't just read it and become well-informed. Become a subscriber, too, and get all of our journalism. To subscribe, you can do so with a special introductory rate. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them Ken sent you.
2: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
1: After 17 years buried underground, billions of periodical cicadas have re-emerged. These insects, known for their strange life cycles and rip-roaring, raucous mating calls, are currently swarming Eastern America, and after four to six weeks, alas, they'll start to shuffle off their mortal coil. The return of these so-called brewed 10 cicadas was hugely anticipated by entomologists, the scientists who study insects, and by brave chefs in search of new ingredients and even more courageous diners.
2: Oh, it is crunchy. There we go. Mm. Uh. How is it? Crunchy at first, then gooey.
1: But not everyone is happy to see the cicadas flourish.
0: Other than these annoying sounds they make, it turns out that this Wave of periodical cicadas might actually be
1: quite harmful to children. Wade Joe is a data journalist at The Economist.
0: Cicadas themselves don't do any harm to humans, but they do happen to feed on the roots of woody plants. Now, farmers are pretty understandably annoyed by all this and respond by spraying their crops with massive amounts of pesticides. It's these pesticides which are of concern.
1: Why is that? What's the problem with the pesticides?
0: According to a recent study by Charles Taylor of Columbia University, these pesticides seem to have an adverse effect on children's health as measured by infant mortality rates. The study itself is pretty interesting. Mr. Taylor uh, starts his investigation by collecting, on a county-by-county basis, data going back to 1950 in America on where periodical cicadas live. Now, in an ideal world, you would have historical data on pesticides, but this wasn't the case. Mr. Taylor had to use a clever proxy. In essence, he used the abundance of apple trees by county as a measure of how much children were exposed to pesticides. And what did he find? His analysis found that if you look at counties which experienced cicada events, children who were in their mother's wombs during those periods... We're far more likely to die. Mr. Taylor estimates that infant mortality rates would increase by roughly 0.3 per 1,000 births. That works out to be roughly a 5% increase over America's national average. In contrast, no such change was seen in counties with no apples. This suggests that this is definitely a cicada effect. These pesticides also seem to affect how well children can learn. What do you mean? When Mr. Taylor looked at children who were exposed to pesticides uh, while they were in utero, by the time they grew up to around eight years old, they fared far worse in school. The paper estimates that these pupils lost, in effect, roughly 10% of a grade year's worth of learning.
1: Do we know what actually causes this problem in children?
0: The main reason why children are especially vulnerable to pesticides, is because their organs are underdeveloped. Uh, Your liver, in general, is responsible for filtering out all sorts of various poisonous materials. But with kids, these organs won't be developed until they become much older.
1: So much for pesticides and apple trees, but what does this mean for the use of pesticides more broadly throughout farming and, and the environment generally?
0: I think this study is a useful reminder of just how complex the environment we live in is. One interesting thing about this study is that it focuses on just a single crop, apples, and a single sort of human nemesis in the form of cicadas. In America, apple orchards only make up for a small portion of land in each county, even in counties which have the most apple trees. What this suggests is that even modest exposures to pesticides can have profound impact on human development. There needs to be much more research into what kinds of regulations might mitigate some of these effects.
1: Wade, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And finally, last week we offered listeners the chance to win a copy of a new book that I co-authored called Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. We invited answers to the question, if space aliens came down from the sky and said, take me to your leader, what single person ought to speak on behalf of all of humanity? Our thanks to the roughly 50 people from all around the world, literally all around the world, who emailed us their entries. Many listeners suggested people like the Pope or Dalai Lama Or Elon Musk or the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, some of whom have been guests on Babbage. Several people said Angela Merkel, and a few suggested Donald Trump, who, as Pieter, a listener, put it, is an authority on saying things that are truly alien and out of this world. But the winners are a listener named Bill, who suggested a computer chip, because they can rapidly and without error share information. Arnaz, another listener, put forward Sherlock Holmes's brother, Mycroft Holmes, who is considered far smarter than Sherlock, whose government job was to consolidate information from all other departments. Miguel suggests the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, whose art navigates the complexities of human society and would introduce to the aliens something that humans cannot live without, freedom of expression and creativity. And my favorite comes from Chris in France, who went meta with the answer and noted that before one makes a choice, one needs to frame the issue well, and he did just that, so we'll add him to the list of winners. All four will receive a signed copy of my new book, Framers, and our thanks to everyone who participated. And thank you for listening to Babbage. To ensure that you stay up to date with The Economist's science and technology coverage, please sign up to Simply Science, the newsletter, at economist.com slash The link is in the show notes. The producer is the fabulous Jason Hoskin, with additional work by the magnifique Alizé Jean-Baptiste. The editor is the sensational Sandra Schmueli. I'm the rather novel Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.